0: You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Some of the heaviest questions that a Christian could ask would include can I lose my salvation? Can someone take away my salvation? Or can I so disgust God by my repeated disobedience, my repeated sin, my repeated rebellion, that God would somehow become so disgusted with me that he would take away my salvation? Let's not let those questions linger too long this morning. Would you go with me, please, to Romans chapter 8? We're going to pick up where we stopped last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. So I encourage you to find your copy of God's word or... Go to your device this morning and open up your Bible app, and let's go to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. We're going to wrap up this powerhouse chapter together today. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Let's stop. Uh, Paul is speechless. That rarely happens to a preacher, much less Paul, where he's just not sure what else to say. He has come to to this portion of Romans chapter 8, and he's a little undone, I think. He does not even know how to fully even comprehend all that he has written down. The Holy Spirit has carried him along, has given him these words to write down for not just the church of Rome, but the church of Highland and Waco, and it comes to this place, it's almost like he takes a little step back and says, I'm, I'm just now realizing all that I have written down and what can I even say about these things? What, what does it even, even add to this? Now, now, what is the, if you will, these things? What is the these things? Well, it's really all of chapter eight. We won't review it all this morning, but I do wanna highlight a few things. If your Bible's open, you can just kind of go back to verse one. What, what, was, what was moving Paul so much What was causing him to be speechless? Well, verse 1, that those in Christ are no longer condemned. Verse 3, God did what the law was powerless to do. Verse 9, the Spirit lives in us. Verse 15, we're adopted and we can call this great God, Abba, Dad. Verse 17, we are co-heirs with Christ. Verse 26, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Verse 28, God is gonna work everything for our good. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. In verse 29, verse 29, verse 30, we saw this last week. Christian, you were foreknown, you were predestined, you are called, you are justified, and you will be glorified. I think Paul is just digesting all of this and goes, what can I even say about these things? Now at the beginning of verse 31, we see the first of seven questions that will be asked in the next five verses, and we will deal with all seven of those questions this morning. The first question is, what shall I even say to these things? And and Paul, we find the answer right here at the very end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now really, Paul's not asking a question when he says, who can be against us? That's not an inquisitive statement. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is an argumentative statement. It is an emphatic statement for you lawyers in the house today or those who are studying law or going to law school. This is an argumentative rhetorical. Who can even be against us? If God himself is on our side, God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the bottom line for you note takers. No one can successfully defeat God, so we are safe. No one can defeat God. Therefore, we are safe in God through Christ Jesus because he is for us. He has called us. He has justified us. He has put us in right standing with God, and that's his plan. And because he's God, no one can possibly overturn the plan of God. No one. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, graciously give us all things. So the argument here is actually fairly simple. It's fairly clear. God delivered up his own son, put his son on a cross, to die on a cross to provide our rescue, to provide our salvation. So the cross is the greatest gift there ever could be. The cross is the greatest sacrifice that ever could be. It's the greatest act that we've ever seen. And because that is such a great, incredible sacrifice from God through Christ, that God will also do all things to keep us saved. Here's the argument. Since God gave the greatest gift to save us, he will do everything else to keep us since he gave his greatest gift the treasure of heaven the one and only son Jesus Christ as God gave the greatest gift to save us he will do everything else that he possibly can which is all things to keep us that's what it says here he does not begrudgingly give us all things he graciously gives us all things this is the extent to the question in verse 31 or the answer to the question in verse 31 he is for us how much is he for us? He gave his son, Jesus, therefore he will give everything else to keep us. Consider this, if he loved you so much when you're a sinner that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you, think how much more extravagant his love is for his children, for those who are now established by God in Christ Jesus have a long list of things I want to change about myself. Like my, If my negative list is over here, it's pretty long. My positive list is relatively short. It's on this side. But on my relatively positive list over here is I'm a fairly generous guy. I'm a pretty nice guy. Like I'm one of those guys that if you ask to borrow my weed eater, I'm like, I'll bring it to your house. If you want to borrow my kayak, absolutely. Collectively, for several years, Jennifer and I have allowed people to to live with us, needed a place to stay. And so we've opened up our home, opened up bedrooms for people to, to stay in. I, I feel like I'm one of those, I will give my shirt off my back types of guys, but I'm not giving you my son. I'm not gonna hand him over to you. If, if weed eater and kayak and a room in my house is over here, then giving my son away is in the Northwest, somewhere over in Oregon, like it's that far away but consider what god has done he has graciously given you his son through a cross or in a cross incredible act the greatest act ever the greatest sacrifice ever if he has given you his son on a cross how much more will he graciously give us all things including keeping your salvation verse verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Paul is asking here, can anyone successfully bring a charge against the salvation of those who are in Christ Jesus? Can anyone bring a charge up against our rescue? Who can go before God and say this, look, I wanna bring this case up again because I think that person over here, I think this person over here is actually very guilty. Bring any charge is a, Is a legal term. It's a legal expression. No one can go before the tribunal of God and say, I've been watching this lady, been watching this guy over here, been watching this student here, and and I see their sin. God, don't you see their sin? Look what they're doing. There's so much rebellion. I really think that you should look at that sin again. I really think that you should retry that person one more time. Here's what I would like to say to you out of verse 33. The highest judge has already rendered a verdict of innocence for his people. And there is no retrial. For those in Christ, the condemnation has already been taken away. And there is no one that can come up against you or come even before God on your behalf and say, I would like those charges to be brought up again. I would like those guilty charges to be retried once more. How is that possible that no one can go before God and say of you that you should be retried again for your sin? The second portion there of verse 33, because it is God who justifies. You did not justify yourself. Had you justified yourself, perhaps someone could come before the great tribunal of God and say that you are guilty. That actually might stick. But when it's God who justifies, no one, no one can come before him and try to retry you for sins in the past. When God, who is the highest source of truth in the universe, there in the highest court in the universe, seated at the highest throne in that highest court in the universe, pronounces a person righteous, there is no retrial. For it's the judge's son who has paid the penalty. So once the highest court in the land, ruled by the highest judge in the land, looks at you and says, righteous, free, forgiven, rescued, mine, You are forever free in Christ. You are forever forgiven and saved in Christ. There is no accusation brought against a daughter or a son of God that will require God to change his verdict about you. Verse 34, here's another question. Who then is to condemn? Uh, This is probably calling back to verse one that we read and learned and some of you memorized weeks ago. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's almost like Paul, who's never been a linear thinker or a linear writer, circles back around to verse 1 and says, wait a minute, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is there then to condemn? Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I'm going to call that this morning, if you don't mind, the fourfold protection plan of your salvation. The fourfold protection of those who are in Christ. I also call it the four who's because there's four pronouns of who referencing to Christ. And again, I I say it's a throwback probably to verse one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we know that to be true? Finally, we get to verse 34 and find out why that's true. Here's the first protection of the fourfold protection plan of your salvation one christ jesus is the one who died when jesus christ died on a cross he paid the penalty for our sin in fact if you want to see this in context he received that condemnation for our sin The condemnation we should have received for our sin that was placed instead on Christ and he was punished for our sin. So Jesus is not gonna undo his cross. He's not gonna undo that sacrifice. He's not gonna bring back that blood that was shed for you. He will not reverse the day that he bore our shame and that he carried our sins. That's the first step of knowing the security of our salvation, the protection of our salvation. Christ is the one who died. The next phrase that Paul uses is more than that. was raised so we start at the cross but now we come to the resurrection christ's death canceled out our sin and the penalty of our sin christian but this was affirmed by the resurrection of jesus god raised him from the dead god raised jesus from the dead to show that he god was satisfied with the sacrifice of the son jesus christ god was saying in the resurrection of jesus that's enough The price has been paid. The sacrifice is sufficient. This shows us the security of our salvation. It begins with the cross, and then it goes to the resurrection. The third thing Paul says here is who is at the right hand of God. You see, God wasn't just mildly satisfied At the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, he was completely satisfied by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, so completely satisfied that he raised Jesus up to be seated in heaven with him at his very right hand. He lifted Christ up to the highest place and on his own throne at his right hand, this is where Christ is seated. So, how do you know that you're saved and saved forever? Paul starts with the cross, he goes to the resurrection. Thirdly, he goes to the ascension that Jesus is now at the right hand of God. But here's the culmination. Here's the fourth part that maybe sometimes in the church we forget. This Christ is the one who intercedes then, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christ died. Christ rose. He ascended. And now he intercedes. That's the summation of the incredible completed work of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that the intercession for today is the high point. He is making intercession for us. This is a marvelous reality that as we are here this morning, if you are in Christ, not only did we learn earlier, a few weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit is praying for you and in groanings in a language we cannot even understand, but even this morning, right now, even though Satan might accuse you all day long, Christ is interceding for us because we have an undefeated lawyer in Jesus Christ who pleads for us, who prays for us, who intercedes for us, and his death and his resurrection is enough for us. It's the people of God. So let me go back 13 and a half minutes ago. Can you lose your salvation? Can someone take away your salvation, Christian? Can God become so disgusted with you that he removes your salvation because you just keep sinning over and over again? The answer to that is no. No. You cannot lose your salvation. Romans chapter eight, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's another question. And he begins to throw out things that we think perhaps could separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or or, or nakedness, or if you're from Texas, that's the same word as nakedness, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul begins to list these things out that some people who don't understand the depth and the security of salvation might say, well, maybe I'm not saved because I'm going through these things. Let me just walk through these things as well because the first two words here are actually opposite words. The word tribulation in Greek actually means an an outside pressure. Something is happening outside of you that is causing you to think that maybe God's love has been separated from me. Maybe it's something that someone is doing, something that's happening around you that maybe might want to cause you to think, Am I, can I be separated from the love of God because of the things that are happening outside here? But the next word, the word distress, is just the opposite. It's an eternal word in Greek. It's, it's a storm on the inside. It might be mental anguish that you're going through A difficulty in your heart or in your mind It's an inward difficulty in life And so Paul says Shall, shall tribulation, the, the outside pressure Shall distress, the inside pressure What about persecution? Persecution is suffering at the hands of Christ-haters And, and god rejectors. Paul is writing this letter to the church of Rome He's not in Rome as he writes this He's in Corinth and it's winter of 57 AD. And as he writes these words down, little would he know that soon this church in Rome would need this incredible comfort. That even persecution, even at the hands of people who hated Jesus, who hate God, they would need this comfort because Paul would soon be killed by the Roman sword. And for those Roman Christians, soon, their blood would soak the sands of the amphitheaters in Rome in mass persecution, and they would need this word. They would need to know that they are safe spiritually in the love of God, that God would never let them go, that he would give them the strength to endure the persecution, and that they did not need to fear death because even persecution cannot separate us. Paul says, the Holy Spirit tells Paul to tell us from the love of God. What about famine? That's being deprived of food, being so poor you don't even have that basic element of, of eating. Nakedness, really the same thing, at the state of being so poor, so impoverished that you can't even afford clothes to put on. Danger, what about that? That's the fear of the unknown. That's that, that dread that a lot of people have of what is to come. So Paul is saying, well, even that separate you from the love of God. What about the sword itself? This is punishment unto death, which is why he references there in verse 36 being led to slaughter, That's execution. What about all of that? Highland, what about all of that? Can those things separate us? the love of jesus can this powerful catalog of circumstances destroy our faith and destroy the love of god for you through christ can it no it cannot if there's nothing else you remember from this morning or nothing else you plan on writing down i would encourage you either to write this in the notes of your iphone or write this in the margins of your bible or get some mascara out and write it on your forearm. Here it is. There is nothing that can make God love you more and there is nothing that can make God love you less. For those who are in Christ Jesus, this is the most freeing statement I could probably ever say to you. There is no behavior modification that you can adjust in your life that will make God love you more. And Christian, even if you rebel this week, there is nothing that can make God love you less now spiritually pragmatically speaking does that truth compel you to live a godless life this week does that truth compel you to live a life of sin this coming weekend and rebellion and disobedience because if you're in Christ and you're growing in Christ and you love God, then this very truth right here that there's nothing that you can do that makes him love you more, there's nothing you can do that makes him love you less should compel you to a life of righteousness this week, a life of holiness, a life of purity, a life of fellowship this week, a life that is patterned after Jesus. See, those statements of grace should not lead us to rebellion. Those statements of grace should lead us to love, to love him even more more. So Christian, here's what I'm trying to say. You're in tight. And you're secure. And God's not wavering on you and God's not wavering on your salvation. You are loved and you are safe. Romans chapter eight, verse 37. Here's the word that answers verse 35 and 36. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, more than conquerors through Christ, the one who, who loves us. I love that little phrase right there, more than conquerors, even though in our English language it's three words in the Greek it's only one word. Here's your one Greek word for the day. The phrase more than conquerors in Greek is, is the Greek word Hooper hupernakeo. Hupernakeo, there's two words you might hear in there. Hooper is where we get our word super or hooper is where we get our word uber. And the KO is where you get the name of those shoes that have a little check mark on the side, Nike. It means victorious or always a winner. And so Hooper Kaneo in Greek means the one who always wins. It means that you are, you're always going to be victorious. What it really means is that there's already been determined before the contest even happens who the winner is going to be. Let me say it again. The winner has already been determined before there's even a contest. Let me just give you an example. Let me just throw out two real random football teams. Okay, Baylor and TCU. So if you can imagine the Baylor-TCU game, if Baylor has already been called a more than conqueror team, it means that that game does not even need to be played because Baylor has already been, been deemed as the always winner, as super victorious. Now, just apply that little illustration to your spiritual life. Before tomorrow morning even breaks, you're already a winner in Christ. You're already more than a conqueror. Your destiny and your destination has already been determined even before there's a fight this week, even before there's a contest spiritually this week. Now, let's not just think about this week. Let's think about a phrase in the song we just sang a few moments ago. What about the very day that you breathe your last? When you come to die, you are already Christian, more than a conqueror. The outcome has already been determined for you even before the contest of death awaits you more than a conquering christ you are a triumphant winner with a resounding victory so here's what you can write down those trials those trials of tribulation distress persecution those trials they make us humble they drive us to god they expose us to this greater grace and they break our self-sufficiencies If you're wondering, why is it then, oh God, that I go through trials on the outside, trials on the inside? Why is it sometimes that I just feel like I'm I'm going through the most difficult, pressured point of life, outside pressure, inside pressure? Why is it sometimes I have this emotional anguish? Why is it that Christians around the world are being persecuted? Why are there Christians even today who have no clothes, who have no food? Why are there believers even in this house that kind of dread the unknown, dread what is to come? Because every one of those trials drive us to God. They bring on humility. They expose us to his greater grace. And I tell you, one of the greatest things that trials do for us here in the West, it breaks our self-sufficiencies. There's one word in verse 37 that I think is more important than the other words. You may be surprised by this. It's a short word. It's a preposition. In the ESV, it's the second word of verse 37. I circled it in my Bible. It's the word in. Because that little word out right there, in, Delineates the prosperity gospel from the biblical gospel. Because the biblical gospel says, oh, you're not gonna be away from those things. The biblical gospel does not say, oh, you're, gonna, you're not gonna be able to skip through the trials and the distress. The, the prosperity gospel says, if you have enough faith or give enough money or sow enough money, whatever that might be, you can skip over the distress. You can skip over the trials. But I love this word right here. It says, in all these tribulations. It doesn't even say if. It says in all these tribulations, in these distresses, in these hardships, in this persecution, in this famine, in this peril, in this danger, in the sword, in all of these things, you don't barely eke by. In fact, you're just the opposite. You are hyper triumphant. You are super victorious. You are an uber conqueror. More than a conqueror through Christ, the one Who loves us? Let's finish this out. And Paul decides to end this symphony on a crescendo. Verse 38. For I am sure, I am certain, I know this to be true, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What sweeping contrasts. Verse 38, neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Death or life, you really can't get more sweeping than that. Death does not separate the Christian from the love of God. For those of you who have attended recently or perhaps will attend soon, the funeral of someone that you love, and that person also loved Jesus and was in Christ Jesus Even their own death cannot separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It cannot separate them from the presence of Christ himself. Neither powers or or demons. Your translation might say angels or demons. Um, Angels wouldn't want to, and demons could not. Verse 38, the present or the future. The present age in which we live right now, and normally in the scripture, but it talks about the future, and that's probably the context here, is talking about future judgment. On the day that we have to stand before God, the great judge, even that will not be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nor any power. Speaking of any mighty work or any mighty miracle cannot take away the presence and the love of God for those who are in Christ, nor height, nor depth. Those are actually astrological words. Paul's talking about the planets, that there's not a planet in the far recesses of the universe that you could go to that would cause you to be separated from the love of God, not a planet in the farthest orbit or even the closest, nothing across the heavens can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And I love verse 39, the very end of it, because you know when you get that job description at that new job and like the very last number says and everything else the supervisor asks of you. That's what Paul says right here, nor anything else in all creation just in case you thought of something else. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So here's what we can write down this morning: no exceptions. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It might beg the question of a few of you, and it's a good question: how can that be? Because I'm I'm broken, I continue to not live the life that I want to live. I love Jesus, I know that I'm in Christ. How is that possible? There are no exceptions, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's here's a big thing for us to understand. Because the love of God toward us is bound up in Christ. You see, the love of God is set upon his son, his one and only, his treasure, the high king of heaven, Jesus I think I say this often. I hope I say it often enough. Maybe I need to say it much more often. When God sees you, Christian, he does not see you and your junk and your shame and your past. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he sees you, he sees his perfect son. The Bible describes it this way. Christian, you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at you, he does not love you based on your behavior. Praise God. God. He does not love you based on who you are or who you might be. He loves you because he loves Jesus, his son. And when he sees you, when he looks at you, he sees Christ, and that can't change. So with a lot of fire in your belly, would you stand with me, please, and let's read these passages together that we have studied today. Romans chapter eight. Beginning in verse 31. Let's read aloud together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. What rich truth upon which we can build our lives. Father, if there are some here today who walked in wondering if they had rebelled just enough to lose their salvation. Or perhaps they might make a mistake one day soon or make a choice in the days ahead that would kick them out of the rescue of God, the kingdom of God, the salvation of God. Father, thank you for the richness of your word to us today. That there is nothing we could do in our behavior that make you love us more. and There's nothing we could do in our behavior that'd make you love us less. That compels us to godliness, to purity, to holiness, to Christ-likeness. What great love, God, you have given and lavished upon your people that we can declare and believe that even in death itself, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this we pray and in this we sing.